Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, in honor of Melanoma Awareness Month, it's a conversation about melanoma with Dr. Dale Hahn. Dr. Hahn is an assistant professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Well, you know, I don't know who makes up these months because I think you need a special calendar depending on whether you're looking at diseases or civil rights causes or whatever. It seems like every month has got to be something, right? Absolutely. And now it's almost every day for something new. Exactly. But melanoma, I would think that, you know, maybe the summer months uh, should be melanoma months. So melanoma, I mean, melanoma is a skin cancer, right? Absolutely. Uh, melanoma is one of the forms of skin cancer, and although it represents less than 5% of all skin cancers, it's actually the third most common, it's actually associated with about 80% of all skin cancer-related deaths. So it's a, it's a very serious form of skin cancer. Right, and it, it's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that many melanomas, if not most, uh, have to do with... Uh, you know, in terms of risk of causation have to do with exposure to ultraviolet light from sunlight and so on, right? Well, that's the risk factor that most people associate with melanoma. Well, or I'm just a person. Cancers. <laughs> but actually, there are multiple uh, risk factors, and the most common or the one that most patients are exposed to the most is certainly ultraviolet light radiation exposure. But there are also other risk factors, including a uh, person's phenotype, meaning who they are, their skin type, um, are they red-haired, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, so forth? Genetic mutations, such as germline mutations that may make you more prone to developing melanomas and so forth. So there are certain other factors, but certainly these play a lesser role compared to ultraviolet radiation exposure. Gotcha. So we're trying to make our audience aware of melanoma. Mm -hmm. So I think all the red-headed, blue-eyed blue types are already kind of getting nervous. <laughs> uh, who else? I mean, how would I know if I had a germline mutation? I don't even know what that is. Well, so a germline mutation is... A, a essentially a mutation that is passed on to you and one that you can pass on to your children. Now, less than 5% and probably closer to about 2 to 3% of all uh, melanomas are associated or do, you know, uh, do or can be uh, brought about by a germline mutation. So certainly a vast minority of patients um, have melanomas that are associated with these. Um, but certainly in, when you see your physician, uh, one thing you should do is relate any family history of cancers. Um, certain patterns of cancers cluster together, especially if you've had multiple uh, first-degree relatives who have had melanomas and certain other types of cancers may uh, raise the red flag saying that maybe we should check and see if there's a germline mutation. So you might be aware that there's a lot of cancer, and particularly that there are several people who've had melanoma in your family. Is that right? And kind of just mention that to your doctor. Absolutely. But even with multiple people having melanomas in your family, that doesn't necessarily say that you harbor a mutation that may make you more prone to developing melanoma. Maybe you all go to the beach together without any sunscreen and get fried all the time, right? Exactly. It's more likely that you all had the same exposures uh, to, ultra, let's say, 
ultraviolet radiation exposure. Uh-huh. So, you know, let's say I'm a sunbather, which I'm not, but I might have been at some point in my life. And You look I, rather tan. You think? <laughs> That's the kind of uh, ethnic background, I think. But I'll be, be that as it may, I do use sunscreen now, but I didn't back then. And, uh, and I've had more than my share of burns. Um, but, you know, skin cancer, everybody knows people who've had skin cancer. And so they get it lasered off or they get it frozen off. Like, you know, why should anybody be that concerned about it? Well, there are a couple things to consider for melanoma. The first is that the incidence of melanoma has been dramatically increasing. Uh, melanoma has been increasing at about 1% to 4% per year. And between 1950 and about 2001, the incidence of melanoma in the United States has increased over 600%. Mm. And now your lifetime risk in the United States of developing melanoma is approximately 3%. 3%? Absolutely. And about 90,000 new cases of invasive disease melanoma are expected in 2018 with about 87,000 additional cases of melanoma in situ. So we're talking about big numbers. And now, wait a minute. That's, it does sound like a lot, but I'm, you're losing me a little bit on this uh, in situ thing and invasive thing. Can you explain to me what that means? Absolutely. So cancer develops along a spectrum, and uh, in situ disease is essentially proliferation of abnormal cells that have not broken through a barrier called the basement membrane and have not invaded into the deeper tissues in the dermis. So they're kind of at the top layer of the skin still. Exactly. And technically, uh, this disease in situ uh, has no invasive uh, components that are seen. Okay. As opposed to a diagnosis of melanoma where where a pathologist on a biopsy or on a surgical specimen will see melanoma cells that have broken through the base membrane and have invaded down into the dermis, and there is a depth or a thickness that is associated with it. I see. So um, I guess people would like to have their melanoma detected when it's in that earlier in situ phase. Absolutely. The earlier your melanoma is diagnosed, whether as in melanoma in situ or as a thin lesion, which is up to a millimeter of thickness, prognosis improves as you get thinner and thinner and thinner. Got it. Well, Dale, I mean, I've got a lot of moles. I mean, I've always had a lot of moles, and I've never, like, paid them much mind. So, you know, how would I know to be worried about them? I can't, like, go checking all my moles, and they just seem, like, normal to me. Absolutely. So there are several things that we would recommend. One is your own self-evaluation because you know your body the best. Um, You're going to look for changes in any moles that you see or the development of new moles or what we term as nevi. Um, And essentially, you're going to look for the ABCDEs, asymmetry, border irregularities, color changes, uh, diameter. Six millimeters is what's stated, although that number is a little bit controversial. Elevation or evolution of the uh, lesion. And then we oftentimes add an F, which is your own feeling about the lesion. If you feel that something's wrong with it, you should definitely have it evaluated. Hmm. Well, I know that sometimes I've had a lesion that usually my wife has picked out uh, to show me that it's, you know, changed or whatever. And I, I don't know. My, you know, my inclination is to kind of minimize it. I mean, melanoma sounds so scary at a, you know, and, and I don't want to go running to the dermatologist for any little thing. That just seems silly. Absolutely. And you bring up an excellent point. The second thing uh, that I was going to mention is that it's not only your own self-evaluations, but evaluations by your family members, significant others, and so forth, and especially for areas where you cannot 
particularly take a look at. Like it's a bag. family show. It absolutely is. Although I'm not advocating for peep shows like that, but um, certainly that's another factor. The other um, third layer that we uh, advocate for is for uh, skin surveillance with a uh, physician. Well, what does that mean? So essentially you'll go see a dermatologist or primary care physician who will do a whole skin evaluation and determine um, you know, where moles and nevi are located, do any of them look irregular, any of them suspicious appearing, any that uh, would warrant a biopsy. So does every patient of a certain age need to have a full body skin exam done by a dermatologist? No, we would certainly overwhelm the entire system if every person went in to get uh, skin evaluations, but certainly certain um, certain patients may uh, benefit more than others, uh, especially those who may have a family history, those who've had significant amounts of sun exposure, particularly patients who've had multiple blistering sunburns in their youth, um, patients who have new lesions or lesions that appear suspicious or have changed in some way. Um, these are patients where there would be a higher yield for having a skin surveillance. How tuned in are primary care physicians to uh, looking at all parts of the skin and to paying attention to this? Uh, do you have any feeling for that? Oh, you're going to put me in a difficult situation. That's a, tell, tell the truth as you know it. That's what we're here for. I, I think it depends on your practice patterns and your training. Um, I think dermatologists are trained specifically in looking for skin cancers and looking for changes in uh, moles and nevi. Um, I think it varies a little bit more with uh, primary care physicians who may not have uh, the specific training and the experience for that. But certainly, I mentioned uh, general practitioners uh, because there are uh, areas, certainly areas in the country where there aren't that many dermatologists sure. and general practitioners, primary care physicians take on this role. Yeah. Well, I have to say that when I <clears throat> moved to um, New Haven uh, a couple years ago, um, actually two years ago, my internist uh, was doing kind of a routine physical and you know noted that I had a lot of moles, which, again, nobody had ever indicated was anything unusual to me. And he says, you know, I really would like you to see a dermatologist for this uh, full body exam, which again, totally caught me off guard because I had very little concern. I've got a good friend who's a dermatologist down uh, in Baltimore, friend, she'd never mentioned anything. But anyway, uh, you know, so I, you know, I'm a compliant patient usually. And I uh, went to see the person uh, to whom he had referred me. And, you know, it was very uh, reassuring after, you know, only took her about 10 minutes to do the whole full body exam. And she re was quite reassuring that, you know, she thought that I had kind of an high average number. She thought that there was maybe a little bit of alarmism going on. She didn't discredit that. She thought it was good, you know, primary care and was reassuring to me uh, that nothing looked bad. <clears throat> that said, she thought she should see me in two years. <laughs> well, certainly, you know, there are no specific guidelines and it all varies by practice. Okay. So let's say, let's say that my uh, internist, uh, you know, who was, you know, quite on the ball sent, sent me to this person and, you know, she, she found something that she was worried about. What would happen next? So uh, you're saying your internist had found it and then referred well, to Well, I just decided that, you know, that he wasn't comfortable with all my nevi and, or moles and sent me to the dermatologist. And she found something that she was, in fact, somewhat concerned about. So usually the first step at that point, once a suspicious lesion is found, is to biopsy it. Why and can't we just watch it for a while? Well, in my mind, if you already have a suspicion or the F that you feel that something's wrong, 
in most of those cases, we will go ahead and biopsy it because, again, it is better to catch a melanoma in a uh, earlier stage or a th- as a thinner lesion okay. than to wait and allow it to progress. Okay, so biopsy sounds scary. Well, so it, it does, and of course, any invasive procedure will sound scary. Um, but a biopsy is an outpatient procedure in the office and basically involves um, using one of two techniques, one of which uh, is called a shave biopsy, where you basically take um, you know, a, a scrape or a, uh, a sample of the tumor using a razor, and essentially you just inject local anesthesia shave off the lesion and then allow that lesion to or allow the uh, the area to heal on its own. Okay. It may take several weeks and it's very well tolerated. The other type of biopsy that is performed is something called a punch biopsy where uh, a device that looks like a small little fancy cookie cutter is used and to punch out or to remove a cylinder of tissue mm-hmm. um, after we've localized the area with uh, local anesthetic. Um, once that's performed, uh, the wound is closed with one or two sutures or a couple sutures, which have to be removed later on. So Again, this te- this technique is also tolerated very well. Gotcha. So there, there's no place here for freezing it or doing anything like that or Absolutely. laser. You bring up a, an incredibly important point in that if there's any uh, melanocytic, meaning any type of mole or uh, nevi that looks suspicious or has the potential in your mind of... Uh, in any way of being a melanoma, uh, these lesions should be biopsied and not treated otherwise with freezing um, or any other technique without getting a biopsy to determine what the pathology is. All right. Well, I'm going to want to find out exactly why that might be because the freezing sounds a lot better than cutting. But right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about skin safety and melanoma treatment with Dr. Dale Hahn. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about survivorship. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. For cancer survivors, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and some survivors face long-term side effects resulting from their treatment, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources are available to help keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Dale Hahn. We've been discussing uh, melanoma, the very serious form of skin cancer. Uh, Dale, um, before uh, the break, you were talking about how anything that somebody might be considering to be a risk for being a melanoma must absolutely be biopsied rather than frozen off. Can you explain why? Absolutely. So the reason we biopsy these lesions is to determine is it actually a melanoma or a benign lesion that we can just watch and follow. Uh, after, if you've, let's say, frozen a lesion, you'll never know if that lesion is actually a melanoma. Well, why would it and matter the, if we got rid of it? Well, the problem is that, let's say you've frozen it, there's a fairly low chance that you've actually treated that lesion adequately, and there's a very high risk that it will come back. Even if it's a teeny-weeny little thing? Absolutely. Huh. 
So the biopsy tells you that it's bad news, it's melanoma. But let's say it's one of these superficial, I think you called it in situ types? So, uh, correct. So, in situ is a very, very early form of melanoma, and it's very treatable. Uh-huh. And once you treat that lesion, you can be cured of that in situ disease. The problem is, is that once you've had one melanoma, you're at risk for additional skin cancers and about a 5% risk down the road for a new melanoma developing. But the treatment there is just the surgery. Absolutely. And it, we classify treatments of... Uh, cancers in general for as treatments of the primary tumor, which in this case would be the area on the skin. And cutaneous melanoma is the most common form of melanoma. There are other subtypes of melanoma, such as uh, melanoma that occurs in your eyes and on the mucosal surface. But in this case, that is treatment of the area of the skin that had the lesion. And then we also uh, consider treatment of the lymph nodes if uh, if the lesion is appropriate for that, and uh, consideration for other sites uh, down the road. Okay, so walk us through that it's not one of these in situ things, but it has invaded into this uh, next layer of the skin that you call the dermis. What happens then? Absolutely. So there are a couple things that we need to determine from the biopsy results. Uh, one, is it melanoma? And two, what is the thickness, meaning how deep is that melanoma going into the underlying tissues? We term a thin melanoma is up to one millimeter thickness. It's like nothing. Well, it I wouldn't <laughs> call it nothing, but it's something that has a much better prognosis. And, and the it's other, less than a pencil point, right? I mean, that's <laughs> small. Absolutely. And the good thing is that about 70%, 60 to 70% of all newly diagnosed cases are thin melanoma. So that's a good factor. Uh, we term an intermediate thickness is between one and four millimeters thickness, and a thick melanoma is greater than four millimeters. So this is to give everyone a perspective how deep these melanomas and Four can millimeters go. is like a pencil point, really, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's put, you know, not everybody knows metric in their audience, right? It's, this is a small thing. Absolutely. So, and and as we mentioned, as you get deeper and deeper and deeper, the prognosis changes. Now, um, if this was a thin lesion, we would cons- we would treat the primary with what we call wide local excision, and then uh, go back and reoperate. Exactly. So the biopsy is done, and then you have to do a formal excision. And what the wide local excision uh, entails is removing not only that. Uh, site with the melanoma, but also a margin, what appears to be normal skin around the uh, melanoma. And this is in order to ensure we get everything out, number one, and two, to make sure that any microscopic deposits outside of that primary lesion are also removed so that we reduce, significantly reduce the chances of that melanoma coming back. So is wide like eight millimeters? Is wide like five centimeters? What's what's wide? (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, we have national guidelines and there have been multiple clinical trials that have defined the additional margins that we utilize in doing a wide local excision. So this will vary anywhere between one to two mil or one to two centimeters beyond the primary site, depending on the thickness of the lesion. Mm-hmm. And does that leave kind of a bad cosmetic result? Well, it depends on what kind of surgery you are. <laughs> so in your case, <laughs> it's always beautiful. Uh, <laughs> so um, the you know as I, I mean, two I, centimeters is pretty big, right? It, it is absolutely is, uh, and we start utilizing that at. Uh, a, thickness of two millimeters or greater, and we can consider using it for lesions between one and two millimeters of thickness. So um, 
as I tell patients, it, you know, just like an auto, you know, for an auto mechanic, it's really easy to take stuff out. It's really reconstructing everything that sure. is the challenge. So uh, reconstructing reconstructing a wound uh, uh, entails multiple considerations, but there's several ways we can reconstruct a wound. Uh, the first is by what's called uh, primary closure, in which we convert the excision into uh, an ellipse or a football shape and then close it as a line. Uh, the thing that patients have to know about this is that although an the wide local excision may only be several centimeters long, the wide local excision will be about two to three times that length so that we can close it as, mm. at that, as that line. The second way we can close a wound is using a f local flap where we transfer part of uh, transfer tissue around the excision site so that we can cover that defect. And That's the, like a skin graft kind of thing. Well, no, skin graft is actually the third way we can close oh, gotcha. it, where we transfer skin from another area of the body and basically put it onto the defect so that the skin can grow onto that defect. I see. So it probably makes a difference if it's on the back or if it's on the butt or if it's on the face, right? Uh, to a certain extent, it's more about uh, because body ha everyone's different, everyone's body's different, the amount of tension that we see at each location varies, um, and it's more about the tension that we see at that uh, site where we've removed the melanoma and whether or not we can close it, uh, you know, convert the lesion to a football shape and close it together as a line, uh, whether or not there's too much tension for that and we have to actually transfer a flap, or if there's just far too much tension for all this, and then we have to utilize skin from another area of the body as a skin graft. I was just thinking more as the patient that, you know, I wouldn't really care if it's on my shoulder back, but I might care more if it's right in my face in terms of what the cosmetic result is. Absolutely. And that is one of the one major factors that we consider in terms of um, the location, the cosmetic effect of the reconstruction. And certainly, um, we consider the extent of the excision, the type of procedure that we're going to utilize, and maybe even help from, let's say, plastic surgeons to help us try to create the most cosmetically, uh, the best cosmetic result for the reconstruction. Sure. I'm sure most people don't want to put their health at risk to look better, absolutely. but given the choice. Absolutely. If we can incorporate both, uh, you know, treating the oncologic issues, but also providing the best cosmetic results, certainly that's the best best combination. All right. So it sounds like if it's, it's pretty easy peasy with a surgeon like you to do this, how can we still hear about people dying of melanoma? I mean, I still read about that. So... Uh, the majority of cases, uh, a majority of patients diagnosed with melanoma, treatment of the primary site, meaning the area on the skin that uh, developed the melanoma, the majority of these patients will be cured. But in a certain proportion of patients, um, you will see more aggressive biology, meaning that melanoma will behave in a more aggressive fashion. For instance, in about 15 to 20% of cases overall uh, in patients diagnosed with melanoma, you can have spread of melanoma cells to the draining lymph nodes. Hmm. Now, uh, to explain this is that uh, you know every patch of skin in your body drains to specific areas, uh, specific nodal basins in your body. Um, let's say on your arm, uh, most melanomas will drain to the armpit or the axilla if there's nodal spread. Um, so in a certain proportion of patients, uh, this type of melanoma where there is spread to the lymph nodes uh, essentially denotes a more aggressive type of melanoma. Um, and as I mentioned, as you get thicker and thicker and thicker, you have a higher risk for melanoma potentially getting into the bloodstream and seeding or going to other sites of the body. Hmm. Um, what we call distant metastases. Well, and if it was in my lymph node, wouldn't I feel a lump? 
Yes, that's certainly possible. And about 10% of patients, uh, when you look at the SEER database, actually present with enlarged lymph nodes that are found to have melanoma. But about 80 to 85% of patients present with just localized disease, meaning disease that you just find on the skin if it's cutaneous melanoma. So um, you're correct that in some patients, in a minority of patients, yeah, you can have uh, melanoma that develops into a enlarged node. But the majority of patients who have spread of melanoma to the lymph nodes actually have what we call microscopic spread, where there's only individual melanoma cells that have gone there. And so we have a technique called sentinel lymph node biopsy that allows us to detect whether or not the draining lymph nodes have spread of melanoma to these lymph nodes. How do you do that? So it's a uh, procedure that uh, involves use of general anesthesia, and uh, what we utilize are tracers. One can be a radio tracer, and second can be a blue dye that we inject around the primary site. And the tracers are taken up by what are called lymphatic channels that drain fluid around cells. Mm -hmm. And those lymphatic channels then go to the draining lymph nodes. The first node that drains that entire lymphatic unit is called a sentinel node and would be the first to most likely harbor any melanoma that's spread along the lymphatics. By utilizing those tracers, we can identify that sentinel node and therefore make a small incision to find that sentinel node or nodes and remove them. Once those nodes are removed, we send those central nodes to the pathologist who then have the job of examining those nodes to determine if there's any melanoma in them. And do they do that while the patient's anesthetized, or do you close them up and look later? So in general, the guidelines do not recommend what what you're discussing is called a frozen section. Uh -huh. So the guidelines generally do not recommend a frozen section for central nodes. And the major reason is that oftentimes there's only small deposits of melanoma in the central nodes. If, for some reason, on a frozen section, there's question or ambiguity as to whether or not the cells are melanoma, and then you've lost those that slide on processing, you may not be able to ever determine uh, whether or not there's melanoma in that node because of issues in processing. Hmm. So, in general, this is examination, this pathological examination is done sort of at the pathologist's leisure pace, so they can really do a good job. Absolutely. You want to make sure that each section of that node is examined thoroughly. And, and what, what happens if you find cells there, bad cells? So I, I knew you were going to go down this pathway. This is extraordinarily controversial at this point. So um, to summarize that, you would have a patient who was diagnosed with a melanoma. You've treated that area with a wide local excision and done a central lymph node biopsy to determine whether or not there's melanoma that spreads to the lymph nodes through a central node biopsy. That sentinel biopsy came back positive, let's say, as you were discussing. So in the past, prior to about two years ago, the gold standard was to recommend what we call completion lymph node dissection. So what is this? It sounds fantasy. bad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so this involves removing the rest of the lymph nodes in that nodal basin. Okay. So let's say you had one node that came back positive in your armpit, your axilla. You would then do another procedure where you remove the rest of the lymph nodes in that armpit. That's a lot of lymph nodes, right? It, potentially. And the reason why this was recommended was because about 15 to 20% of patients with a positive central node would be found to harbor additional nodes with melanoma. Uh -huh. So this was primarily for disease, what we call disease control to get all the melanoma out on sure. that site. The controversy was that we didn't know definitely if there was a survival benefit in performing this procedure, meaning 
in doing a completion lymph node dissection, I wouldn't be able to tell the patient, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to improve your survival. We just didn't know. And some of them would have problems with bad swelling, right? Exactly. With the risks of the procedure, and the big one that we talk about is one of the big ones uh, that we talk about, which could be chronic, is something called lymphedema, which is swelling in extremity. So this has been controversial. However, in the past year, one to two years, two big trials have now come out, uh, which have uh, thrown everything into a loop for this because both those trials assessed uh, positive central node patients and randomized them, meaning uh, put them either into a group where you just watch them and not and didn't do any surgery unless they actually recurred with melanoma and then you remove those lymph nodes or randomize them or put them in a group uh, where you did this completion lymph node dissection. Which was standard. Exactly. And Flip what they, the coin, basically. Exactly. And what they found was actually that there was no difference in survival between these two groups. So this brings into the question, well, do we really need to perform a completion lymph node dissection? So the guidelines have now changed a little bit to say that you should extensively discuss the risks and benefits of performing this procedure, and it should be considered on a case-by-case basis. Got it. Uh, well, we're going to need to bring you back to figure out uh, what to do, um, you know, if, God forbid, the melanoma comes back. But we've got about a minute more right. for awareness. So what should people do to minimize their risk of melanoma? So. There are multiple things that can be done, and one of the big things you have to realize is uh, melanoma has risk factors, some risk factors that are modif- you can modify, right? And there are preventable things. So certainly the amount of ultraviolet light radiation exposure you have um, should be um, changed in multiple ways or minimized or reduced. And you can do that by using sunscreen. Uh, we recommend SPF 30 um, and uh, to apply that every three hours. And even if you if it's water resistant, there's no longer waterproof um, to reapply as soon as you come out of the water. You should also avoid uh, the um, the parts of the day where there's the highest amounts of ultraviolet light radiation exposure between 10 and 4, 9, 9 and 4 o'clock. Good luck uh, with that one. <laughs> Absolutely. And then uh, use sun protective clothing um, in which they have uh, sun protection woven or uh, incorporated into the fabric itself. Um, Certainly, uh, as we discussed, also do your own skin exams, family uh, members helping with that, and also uh, going to dermatologists for um, whole skin checks. What about tanning beds? So um, I'm glad you brought that up because melanoma is the most common form of cancer now in uh, patients aged 20 or uh, 25 to 29. Now, people will ask, well, that's all due to probably what tanning beds and uh, you know social factors. It's probably multifactorial, but certainly tanning beds are probably at least one factor in that. Um, what studies have shown in, internationally is that in countries uh, where tanning bed use was either restricted or prohibited at certain age groups, the incidences of melanoma decreased in those countries. So uh, there is definitely legislation here in the United States looking at, into that and trying to either restrict or prohibit uh, tanning bed use uh, in certain age groups. Dr. Dale Hahn is an assistant professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. 
I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.